Hi, this is Erica Eggers, and this is Behind the Beaker. Hello, and welcome, science listeners. I'm Jillian Barch, your host and science reporter for The Daily Wildcat, and you are listening to Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat science podcast. Today, we talk with Erica Eggers about her research of sensory inhibition by using the retina. So my lab works on the retina, which is the layer of neurons that's in the back of the eye that is responsible for sensing light and then carrying that information to the rest of the brain. Uh, And we work on two different areas, kind of focuses on that. Um, One is to look at the early effects of diabetes on the retina. And the other is to look at how neurons in the retina respond to changing lighting conditions. So going from a really dark room to a bright, you know, sunny day in the desert in Arizona, um, how that how that happens. Very interesting. What led to you going into this field? So I have always been interested in science from when I was a little kid. Um, when I was very small, I wanted to be a paleontologist, actually. So that, uh, that led into chemistry and physics. Uh, And I was a physics major in college, but took a physiology class and they were talking about electricity in the brain. And I thought that was really fascinating that something that we studied in physics also happens in your body. Um, So I became interested in neuron signaling um, and that led to working on the retina eventually. I feel like that happens often in college you end up finding a different way to go. Well, you do. I, I went to Washington University uh, for my undergrad, and I think half of the students come in saying that they want to be pre-med. So, you know, I, I was not one of those people, but I just ended up taking this class because a lot of my friends were, and it seemed maybe interesting. So, yeah, it was it was kind of chance. Could you explain to us how your research works and what the next step is? One main thing that we do is record electrical signals from neurons in the retina and then shine lights onto uh, those cells and see how they change their response um, to light. So we use a mouse model of the, the retina so we can actually take the retina out of the back of the eye. And because the retina actually comes out of the eye pretty easily, most of the connections are still in place and all of those cells still respond to light as they would normally in the eye. Uh, So we can actually look at what the normal response of those cells would be and see how that response changes uh, when we have an animal model of diabetes or when we change the lighting conditions. Um, So we record electrical signals from individual neurons that we can identify under the microscope uh, my postdoc, postdocs and students spend a lot of time sitting in the dark um, because since we're flashing lights onto the retinas, we want that to be the only light that they're exposed to. So we have night vision goggles and infrared lights, uh, dark rooms that uh, they all spend their days sitting in and record those electrical signals. Um, in response to just the lights that that we're giving. So that's a good chunk of what we do. And then we also label individual cell types or classes of cells um, with fluorescent antibodies and fluorescent labels. 
so that we can have images of the retina. Um, so there's a, a chunk of my lab that does that. Very interesting. I, that's cool that your lab has all the like night vision goggles and everything. Yeah, it is complicated sometimes, uh, but it is it is cool. What have been some challenges you faced with this research? So I think a huge challenge for the people in my lab have has been to um, learn how to do everything in the dark because that is uh, not the normal way that we we do things. Um, just getting everything to work all at the same time can be complicated. And so, you know, you have days when you go in the lab and nothing works. And so that can be very frustrating uh, for students. Um, you know, definitely a challenge for, I think, all researchers is always getting money to uh, fund the research program and to pay the people that are working in your lab. And so, uh, you know, especially when I first came to the University of Arizona, I spent a lot of time writing grants. It's been a little better lately, but I'm waiting to uh, hear about a renewal on a grant right now. So I think, you know, just learning, having people learn the technical aspects and then also uh, making sure that you have enough funding to run your lab has are probably the biggest challenges. That's exciting. I hope you get that grant soon. What has been the most surprising thing you found from this research? I, before I started working on um, diabetes in the retina, I did a lot of, only did really basic research. So, you know, studying how specific neurons are connected in the retina or how, you know, individual proteins or neurotransmitters were working at the synapse. And I got interested in this diabetes project because there were quite a few studies suggesting that something is changing at the neuron level in the retina, but um, people hadn't actually recorded from individual neurons to see what that was. So I have, you know, a long, longer history of looking at really basic mechanisms of, you know, effects of dopamine. Uh, neuromodulators on signaling in the retina or changes in uh, very specific aspects of neurotransmitter release. And I think what's been surprising to me is that a lot of those things that I learned from the basic properties of the retina have become really important for studying the diabetic retina as well. So um, for instance, in a couple of you know, uh, the most recent paper that we published, we were looking at the fact that several labs have shown that dopamine levels are reduced in the diabetic retina. So dopamine may be more familiar as something that cells that make dopamine are lost in Parkinson's disease, um, but it's also made by cells in the retina. And dopamine is released when you go into brighter light environments. So it's a modulator that allows you to adapt to increasing light conditions. So when we saw that you know, people had shown that dopamine levels were changing in the diabetic retina, then we wanted to know if the light adaptation was changing. Um, and we found that in fact it is that if you, uh, put a, take a cell in the retina and increase the lighting, uh, the background light conditions on that cell. In a normal 
you know, healthy uh, cell in the retina that causes a reduction in sensitivity because you're in brighter light. So I don't need to respond to as, as dim a light anymore. Um, but in the diabetic retina, that adaptation was reduced. So I found that really interesting, but you know, something that we were actually studying in the basic side of the retina became very important for what we were doing in, in diabetes as well. So it's, it's a nice argument for funding both basic research, you know, for doing both basic research and disease-based research, I think that the two can overlap really nicely. How did you get the idea to like look into that? How did you even think to look into that research? You know, a lot of it comes from going to, to meetings, especially a big one that we go to is ARVO, which is the Association for Research and Vision and Ophthalmology. Um, so, you know, there's people who study just the basic properties of vision who go there, but also people who study diseases. And for a few years, there had been people talking about results where they were recording um, ERGs in humans with diabetes and also in animal models with diabetes. And an ERG is kind of like an, an ECG that you might do on the heart where you're recording the electrical activity of the whole heart, except uh, it's an electroretinogram, so it's over just the retina in the eye. And they were seeing these changes in the ERG that suggested it had to do, suggested that there were changes in inhibition in the retina. Um, and so I looked at that and said, well, I know how to study inhibition in the retina, so we should really record that from individual neurons and see how that is changing um, in response to diabetes. And then the dopamine aspect of it was sort of similar, that you know, there had been several papers and people talking about dopamine levels being reduced in the retina but no one had actually looked at how that was changing retinal physiology. So um, generally I'm pulling ideas from, from other papers, but uh, translating it to what you know, we know a lot about and what we can add to the, the story. Um, I read that inhibitory and excitatory exhi <laughs> um, inputs to neurons must be properly balanced and timed for correct neural signaling to occur. How is that accomplished and what is the process of that? The retina, I think, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with rods and cones, right? That are actually um, absorbing the light information and carrying that through the retina. Um, but they're the photoreceptors that actually sense the light, send that signal to um, bipolar cells and ganglion cells, which form the optic nerve um, that goes to the rest of the brain. And that is an excitatory pathway, which means that generally speaking, you, if you sense an excitatory neurotransmitter, you're going to increase the activity of a neuron. And you know, this is true in the retina, this is true everywhere in the brain, um, that all of those main excitatory pathways are shaped by um, inhibition. So in the retina, that comes from cells that are going uh, sideways through the retina instead of straight down you know, through the retina from the front of the eye to the back of the eye. And that inhibitory signaling 
can reduce activity, but it does it in specific ways so it can change the timing of activity. Um, and it can also change how big the stimuli are that a cell responds to. So it can make, instead of you know, responding to a, an image that's a foot across, maybe that cell responds better to an image that's six inches big. So the inhibition never you know, shuts down the signaling in the excitatory pathway, but it tunes, sorry. <laughs> But it tunes the input into the pathway uh, so that you respond to the signals that are moving, uh, changing with the proper timing or with the proper size. Very interesting. And then I know you mentioned a little bit about what goes on in your lab and how there were studying sensory inhibitation by using the retina. What does that mean and what is the significance of this? So. Yeah, I talked about how we, we study with doing electrical uh, recordings. And a lot of times we are studying inhibition or the effect of, of inhibition by recording from a neuron that receives inhibitory input from another neuron. So um, a lot of my work has been recording from the bipolar cells, which are kind of in the middle of the retina. and they get inhibitory inputs from other neurons. So we will record those isolated inhibitory inputs and look at how they're affected by timing or different receptors. Um, or we can record the output of the bipolar cells onto the downstream ganglion cells and see how um, inhibition affects that output. Or in more recent studies, we've looked at dopamine um, effects as well. Your lab recently showed like all that research with the light ad adaptation and early diabetes. What does this mean for the future of those in early stages of diabetes? Yeah, so we showed that, uh, you know, it seems like dopamine signaling, especially onto um, dopamine modulation of signaling onto ganglion cells in the retina um, is reduced in diabetes. And a lab that we work with um, at Georgia Tech actually has been doing studies where they uh, supplement animals uh, with dopamine. So they increase the levels of dopamine in the retina in the, the diabetic animals and showed that that can reduce the neuronal effects of diabetes in the retina. And in fact, they also did a sort of small early clinical trial uh, with human diabetic patients showing that the changes in the electroretinogram um, that they could record in people with um, you know, not very advanced diabetes was reduced if they supplemented those patients with dopamine. So, you know, I think something that's really interesting to us is if you increase dopamine levels, you know, does that change these uh, neuronal signaling properties that we've been able to show are, are diminished in diabetes? Um, and also the end result of diabetes in the retina and the thing that can cause people to go blind is actually changes that are happening in the blood vessels in the retina and not 
the neurons specifically. So we don't know if the neuronal changes that are happening are completely tied to the blood vessel changes or if they're both sort of happening independently. Um, so we don't know if you modulate the neurons, you know, if you sort of fix the neuronal activity, does that help the blood vessels stay in good shape as well? We want to figure out what's going wrong with the neurons and if you can change that, you know, increase or decrease the neuronal activity in a way that would perhaps prevent the long-term effects. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. This is my opinion. This is my My opinion. My opinion. This is my opinion. I'm Lauren Borelli, and I'm your host for the podcast. Here, we will have our writers from the Opinions Desk at the Daily Wildcat discussing weekly topics. And really, they're going to say whatever they want, because this is a podcast about our opinions, why we have them, and what we have to say about it. Don't like what we have to say? Submit your ideas through email to storyideas at dailywildcat.com. As you hear an opinion you maybe never heard before. Like it or don't, we don't really care because this is my opinion. But really, we hope you do. So go listen, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream podcasts. And don't forget to comment, rate, and share. This is my opinion. This is my My opinion. My opinion. This is my opinion. Could you tell us about your publication, Dopamine D1 Receptor Activation Contributes to Light? adapted changes in retinal inhibition to rod bipolar cells. Uh, so this was mostly uh, work done by my uh, PhD student who just graduated, Michael Flood. It was a, a chunk of his PhD dissertation, actually, um, but also contributed, other members of my lab contributed to this. And uh, so this is mainly the paper where we looked for the first time at how dopamine signaling was changing in the retina in diabetes. Um, so we, uh, the diabetes model that we use um, causes animals to develop uh, really high blood glucose. And then we wait for about six weeks after that develops. And we showed that there were changes in, especially the ganglion cell activity, both in their response to um, light adaptation, and also in their just their responses to light in in general, that seems like they might be getting excess excitation, and so that that could be a problem that's leading to later um, ganglion cell death that people have seen in. Uh, human diabetic patients especially. What was it like to work on this publication, especially with some of your students? Uh, so that publication in particular, is it took a really long time. It morphed over uh, many iterations, I would say. Um, but, you know, it was a good experience. You might, my uh, graduate students spent a whole lot of time uh, uh, sitting in the dark for that one. So, I, you know, I think it was a big big commitment on his part, um, but, and we also, it also allowed uh, Andrea Wellington, who works in my lab, um, the ability to develop how to actually study the, um, the images and the anatomy of the dopamine cells in the retina. So it was nice to actually get that finished and um, published so that we can, we can talk about it in a more concrete way. 
What other publications have you worked on? Quite a few. <laughs> uh, recently, though, we've had uh, something from my previous PhD student, actually before Michael, um, that was the last paper from his PhD that was actually looking at dopamine modulation of inhibition in the retina, but in a normal retina, so not having anything to do with, uh, with diabetes. That was actually funded by um, a different grant from the National Science Foundation that focuses on just normal retinal activity and, and not uh, with disease modulation. So that was also a sort of nice thing. And like I said, when these projects both started, there was no overlap between these projects and now they're overlapping significantly, which is kind of fun. What were your early years like? And was this field something that has always interested you? I know you said you always loved science, but what was, was this field always something in the back of your mind? Yeah, so definitely I never expected to be a biologist or a physiologist, I don't think. Um, like I said, when I was little, I was interested in dinosaurs and paleontology. Uh, when I that got more into high school level, um, that became more interesting chemistry and physics. And I think in part that was because at the high school level, at least in my school, um, biology was taught, you know, you did a lot of anatomy and it was, you know, a lot of memorization and not so much learning about how things work. And so, you know, I thought that's all that biology was. And so I wasn't interested in that. And, you know, when I went to college, I intended to be a chemistry or, or physics major. But um, when I took that one biology class kind of on a whim and learned about physiology and how I mean, you can actually study how the body works and not just study you know, where things are, um, that was very interesting to me. So I um, still kept with studying physics, but I did a biology minor as well. And when I decided to go to graduate school, I really wanted to study electricity in the body and you know how that is signaled in in neurons. Um, so that's why I got interested in you know, electrophysiology and electrical signaling. The retina came a little bit later, actually. The when I was a graduate student, I studied uh, neuronal signaling in uh, the brainstem neurons that are responsible for moving your tongue, um, especially in while you're breathing. Uh, so that's pretty unrelated to the retina, but the lab that was next door to mine worked on the retina. And I, you know, as I was going through graduate school, I got more interested in that because of the ability that I mentioned earlier to actually stimulate the neurons with light, but still be able to record the electrical activity. So you can look at the more natural stimulus, but still be able to do ask really specific questions. Um, so when I did postdoctoral work, then I moved into studying the retina. What experiences led to you choosing this field of work? I know you just said that it was walking past that lab and the lab next to you and everything, but what other experiences? I also, you know, in in general, when I've I've worked in quite a few different labs because as an undergraduate and a graduate student and a postdoc, and you know, I had specific 
research interests in mind for the labs that I picked, but I also tried uh, to pick advisors and mentors who were just, you know, nice people and easy to talk to and easy to work with. Um, so I think, you know, the experiences of being in these labs that were always, you know, pretty calm places to be, you know, not, not a lot of uh, drama happening in, in these labs. Um, and, you know, advisors that were helpful, but not, you know, sitting over your shoulder and telling you what to do um, all the time um, has really, really led me to end up where I am. And then this kind of ties into everything, but what was your education journey like? Um, like, I know grad school can take a long time, so kind of how was that? And then what college did you go to and everything? So I went to Washington University in St. Louis uh, for undergrad, and I have a degree, my bachelor's degree is in physics, but I did minors in biology and music as well. Um, the music is really just for fun, but um, it was it was nice to be able to go do something else for a while and not be in the lab all the time. Uh, so when I went to graduate school, I went to University of Washington uh, in the physiology and biophysics program there. So that sort of combined the the biology and physics. Um, I was there, I think, for six years. I know it's a long time ago at this point. Um, and when I graduated, I actually went back to Washington University, um, but this time at the medical school there and uh, worked, did postdoctoral work for six years, learning how to do work on the retina and uh, record signals from there. So I was in the ophthalmology department um, at WashU. Uh, and then I came, came here in 2009. How do you like it here? <laughs> oh, I like it. You know, it's there's a little bit of adjustment uh, from Missouri to Arizona, but uh, yeah, it's really nice not to have to deal with snow and ice and, and all those sorts of things. Mosquitoes. Yes. <laughs> what mentors have you had that had a significant impact on your life? Oh, I, there's <laughs> there's a lot of them. I saw that question earlier. Uh, so, I mean, all of the labs that I've worked in have you know, been really helpful, I think, in, you know, helping me figure out what I wanted to do, even if they weren't, you know, specifically guiding me, but, you know, letting me explore different options so I could could figure out the next steps of, of where I should go. Um, my uh, ad PhD advisor was, you know, pretty and actually my postdoc advisor both are um, were men, but they're both married to women who worked in academics. And, you know, in the case of my PhD advisor, they had a son. And so, you know, in some ways they were very good models of how to, you know, balance work and life and, you know, be able to have both, I think, as well. Uh, what are you currently working on and what projects are you planning on doing in the future? Uh, so we're currently working more on dopamine modulation, both in the diabetic retina and also just in normal uh, retinal activity. My uh, current PhD student is working on a project where 
we have mice that have a special channel expressed in all the inhibitory neurons in the retina that responds to light by itself. So, you know, it seems odd that you're increasing the response of retinal neurons to light since the retina already responds to light normally. Um, but this allows us to directly activate the inhibitory neurons uh, and not have to worry about all of the upstream um, kinds of things. So um, Tim has been working on that project, trying to uh, activate these inhibitory neurons directly and show how dopamine um, modulates uh, those receptors. So, you know, we're excited about using that sort of technique more, I think, to simplify the system a little bit and we can ask more, more detailed questions. Um, they're not things that we're involved with, but there are people that are using similar techniques to that to um, try to have human retinas express proteins like that uh, and restore sight to uh, people who are blind. So it's kind of a, a cool technique to be to be working on. Is there any like project that you have an idea for right now um, that you're like really excited for in the future or anything? But we haven't even started you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a, a couple of things, actually, that, that we're kind of excited to get going. Uh, one of my master's students is hoping to work on this project where we can actually measure dopamine release uh, from the retina. So all, you know, all the studies so far have shown that if you take a whole retina out and grind it up, uh, the dopamine levels are lower but we don't actually know if the physiological function is different. The physiological release of dopamine is different. So we're hoping to work on that with another lab um, at the University of Arizona to be able to really specifically measure dopamine levels and show that that's changing in the diabetic retina. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, something that I would really like to look at, but we haven't had the, the chance to yet is to see how retinal neurons are changing in, um, in Parkinson's disease, actually, because that disease is clearly tied to the death of dopamine neurons in the basic, in the basal ganglia, but we think that that might, and there's some evidence for that actually happening in the retina as well, and that it might be causing visual problems in people with Parkinson's too, but we haven't quite gotten the, the things together to work on that yet, but I think it would be something really interesting to look into. Um, is there any advice you would give to students who are interested in pursuing a career in physiology or biology? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, exploring, you know, trying to do some reading and seeing what areas really interest you is, or, you know, taking things from class and looking into them more is something that can really help define what your actual interests are. Um, I haven't talked about it, but I actually run an outreach group that's part of my National Science Foundation grant, the Arizona Retina Project. First year students named it uh, several years ago, but um, those students work with me for a year and part of what we do is they have to come up with a topic every week to write about um, that's related to the eye or eye disease. Uh, and then we also do, normally we do outreach events in person. Obviously this year that's 
not happening. This year, they're making videos to explain uh, things about the eye to kindergartners, actually. Um, but I've had you know students who've gone through that year with me. A lot of them, it's really helped to focus their interest because they will they have to come up with something every week. So it's you know it's a lot of topics that they have to come up with something to write about. And they'll pull things from class, you know, they'll pull things from articles they see in the newspaper or online somewhere, um, and just, you know, get to explore it a little more. And I think doing that has helped many of them figure out either that, you know, they want to they want to go to medical school and do ophthalmology, or, you know, some of them are actually optometry optometrists now or in optometry school. Um, one just contacted me the other day to get her to write her letter for a physical therapy program. So obviously she's gone in a, a different direction, but um, I think spending a little time just to allow yourself to explore things that might interest you, I think is really helpful for um, figuring out what you want to do. And also if you're interested in, you know, actually doing research as your career, then getting involved in a research lab as early as possible is definitely uh, would be important. That was really good advice. Um, and then it made me think of one other question. How has it been with COVID working? Are you guys still able to go to the lab as often? And how many people yeah. are allowed in there? How has that kind of been affected? You know, we've been essentially still able to go to the lab, but we've been trying to space people out. So, you know, my lab, because of all the dark rooms, has a lot of little small rooms. So you can have people, you know, spaced out in their individual rooms if they stay there, right? Um, but there definitely is equipment that sometimes, you know, multiple people need to use. It's in the same room. So, you know, they've had to kind of coordinate to try to, you know, space themselves out so we don't have so many people there at the same time. And then, you know, people have been working from home to do analysis or reading or things that don't absolutely have to be done at the lab. I've been mostly at home, both because I'm not, you know, physically doing experiments most of the time, and also because I have a, a daughter who's doing virtual school, so that's, you know, then you can't just send her to school, right? Um, so it's definitely changed the whole, you know, how the lab functions, but we're still getting things done, I think. I was curious about that because I haven't heard much about how labs are working right now. So thank you for that's you know some are more in person than others. I think it just depends on how you know what your research projects are and how the lab is is set up. Um, I know that in I don't know if the you know what the MRB building is, but it's a medical research building that's on the uh, north side of campus and. All of the labs in there are these really big open bays, so there's not a lot of walls. Um, so people have had schedules, you know, they have one student's time is eight to three and the next student gets, you know, three to 10 or, you know, whatever that lab decides on. But um, I think that's how a lot of people have been dealing with it is having more uh, scattered schedules, which means that you know, we just don't get to see each other as often, which is not ideal. Uh, hopefully everything goes back to normal soon. Hopefully by this fall, maybe. Yeah, lots of people will get vaccinated. Behind the Beaker is a daily wildcat podcast created by Alexandra Perry. 
The Daily Wildcat online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Thank you, Erica Akers and everyone involved in this podcast, including science editor Amit Sayal, managing editor and producer Pascal Albright, Umga Beckentraman, the Science Desk, and Arizona Student Media. Behind the Beaker is a podcast about the unbelievable science and even more unbelievable scientists behind it at the University of Arizona. For more UA science stories, visit dailywildcat.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Daily Wildcat. This has been Behind the Beaker, a Daily Wildcat podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, and rate our show.